0: And turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. I'll be reading verses 1 through 17. Uh, We finished John 12, and so we're picking up with this very pivotal chapter. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and we can put one in your hands. You can even keep it if you don't have one. We'd love to make sure that everyone has a copy of God's Word. Starting in verse 1. Now before the Feast of... The Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed eats only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So, when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray again. Father, we ask for the ministry, the help of your Holy Spirit. I pray for your anointing, your strength, your peace, your wisdom. Every word is measured and given by the anointing of your Spirit, Lord, I pray that you would magnify your name and your word above everything else. Lord, you draw us nearer to you. If there's anyone that does not know you, they would call upon your great name and receive your mercy and grace. Those of us that know you would grow in love and humility here this morning, and we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, by the Spirit. Amen. So the scene has changed from chapter 12 here to chapter 13. Last we saw, Jesus was teaching and preaching in the temple. And he had issued, uh, you might remember, this closing public altar call, if you will, to salvation and to believe in him and be delivered from darkness. And he's now seated in this very private setting, what we believe to be, we're not 100% sure, but confidently sure, that this is the Passover meal with the disciples. And starting here from John chapter 13 all the way to John chapter 17, we have the most intimate exhortation, encouragement, promises, and prayer of Jesus given to and for the apostles. But by extension to all believers that will ever live, John takes us inside these final hours, and these final words, before the betrayal, before the trial, and before the crucifixion of Jesus. Now each of the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each of the synoptic gospels, they all include the Last Supper. And each of the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Last Supper, is 14 verses in each of those books. It's exactly 14 verses. They're not the same length of 14 verses. Some of them have a little longer text. But each of those synoptic Gospels retelling of the Last Supper contain a small portion of what Jesus said at that meal. But John here, he dedicates five full chapters to this night before the cross, which is inclusive of that Last Supper. The vast majority of what is in chapter 13 through chapter 17 is only found in John's gospel, the vast majority of it. As a reminder to all of us, John's gospel was the last of the four gospels to be written, the last one of the four to be written. And so these five chapters come at the very end. It's kind of, they were reserved, if you will, as the final detailed teaching from Jesus to the disciples and to us, the church, for the last 2,000 years. These five chapters They're given exclusively once Judas leaves the room, which is going to happen you know, in this uh, 13th chapter at the beginning. Once Judas, Ju- Judas leaves the room, everything Jesus is saying is expressly to the born-again believer. He's talking to Believers, not to the outside lost world. And of course, he loves the outside lost world, but this night he's talking to the church. He's talking to believers. William McDonald said John 13 through 17 is one of the best loved sections of the entire New Testament. This is the passage I actually listen. I listen often from sometimes chapter 13 all the way through 21. Sometimes I just go 15 through 21. When I'll go on a run or just walk or talk or just listen. I will listen to these chapters again and again, again. probably now hundreds of times in the last year and a half. Uh, But these five chapters are known as the Upper Room Discourse. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that term, but this is known as the Upper Room Discourse, just as the other three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, they record what we know as the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse was just days before the Upper Room Discourse course, that took place on the Mount of Olives, and the Olive Discourse dealt with the end of the age, the coming tribulation, the return of Christ, that's what the Olive Discourse dealt with. Um, this discourse, uh, and by the way, John did not record the Olive Discourse, just the other three, but the other three don't record the Upper Room Discourse, uh, just little portions of it. John, I mean, in the breadth of this five chapters, John is the one that records this Olive Discourse by the leading of the Holy Spirit, and he dedicates nearly a fourth of the entire book to this final night and these final words of Jesus before he lays down his life. Alexander McLaren said this, he said, nowhere else in his speech at once is so simple and so deep. Nowhere else have we the heart of God so unveiled to us. The immortal words which Christ spoke in that upper chamber are of his highest self-revelation in speech, even as the cross to which they led up to is his most perfect self-revelation in act. So these five chapters, Jesus is speaking the most revealing of his love for the church. The cross is the physical act of his love for a sinful humanity. If you're taking notes you see the title uh, again this morning serve like the Savior a humble outpouring as we go through this you, you can't help but notice just how humble Jesus is these five chapters they begin with an act of service and humility on the part of Jesus that serves as a living blueprint for the apostles that were there that evening and for every believer that's ever lived in the last 2,000 or so years. I do not have, which is unusual for me, but not unprecedented, I do not have a sectioned outline this morning. But let me set the scene as we look at what John sets forth and what Jesus unveils in himself and what we're to learn this morning, what we're to apply from Jesus' sacrificial service, which all takes place on the eve of his sacrificial death. So all this is the night before he's going to go to the the cross. Back to verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own that were in the world, he loved them to the end. So John prefaces his eyewitness account of this monumental evening by stating that this meal precedes Israel partaking of the Passover as a nation, that this meal precedes it, whether it's by hours or a day, we do not know. There's debate among scholars exactly what that means, but uh, many scholars do believe that Jesus officiated the Passover feast early for the disciples. We, again, we, we don't, there's ways to rectify the calendar, numerous ways, but But it's pretty clear that he took it before Israel did at this point. And knowing that Jesus, he's the only one that knew that he was the sacrificial lamb, it makes a lot of sense that he's going to reveal that to the men he's going to send out into the four corners of the world that are going to represent, no, no, the Passover was always about Jesus. John doesn't say definitively that this meal was the Passover meal, but we do believe, at least I certainly do, and many others do as well, that it was based on the timeline and the harmony with the other Gospels. John further prefaces the sovereignty and the faithfulness of Jesus here in verse 1. That hour, he said, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, Now this is the third or fourth time that we've seen this reference in chapter 12 and 13, that this hour had come. Remember back, way back at the wedding in Canaan, Jesus said, it is not yet my hour. My hour has not come, but clearly this hour has come. And we've talked about the fact that the hour is not one single moment, just like there's 60 minutes in an hour and a lot of seconds in an hour. You have this whole Passover week, which is inclusive of the hour, but then just like in a regular hour, when you get near the end of the hour, things are getting really close to being completely done. And that's where Jesus is. He's in this hour that has come. And it goes back to when he said in John chapter 12, verse 23, um, this hour has now come and that he would glorify his father, which is to finish all the things that the father had given him to do. And in soon returning to the father, it says here in verse 1, that Jesus knew uh, that the hour had come that he should depart from this world to the father. Jesus knows he's going to soon return to the Father. No one else there knows that Jesus is a little more than 40 days away from going back to sit on the throne he left. That night, no one else knows that he's got 41, 42, depending on how we look at this, depending on which scholar is saying, no, I think it's this day or I think it's that day. Fine, 41, 42 days or so before he's going to go back and sit on the throne and Jesus he would not only while he was finishing this mission not only was he going to purchase the atonement through his blood that he came to provide but it says that he had loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end not only did he know he was going back to the father not only did he know he would complete the mission but he knew that he had loved his own those who were saved by faith That he had poured into them, that he had taught them, that he had protected them, that he had ministered to them. And not only will Jesus love them and us to the end, but he'll love them and us perfectly. Amen? Because you and I don't love perfectly. We try and love perfectly, but we fail miserably to love perfectly. But he's loved them to the end, and the end even shows a fullness, a perfecting of love infinitely and eternally. And so it follows that these five chapters, John prefaces all this, it follows that these five chapters are of Jesus loving and caring for his own. Loving and caring for his own. Jesus died for the world, but he only loves and cares for his own sheep. Amen? Amen. You have to be his sheep to be cared for as him, the good shepherd. Now, one in the room, though, is not his sheep. One in the room is not his own. And so John begins in verse 2 uh, with an asterisk, if you will, of this supper scene. Judas was there, but he would soon be leaving because Jesus is going to be talking just to born-again believers. Judas had already predetermined in his mind and in his heart to betray Jesus. Look what it says in verse 2. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Jesus, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. Judas had already determined he was going to betray Jesus, but Satan was now impressing upon him. Satan was well aware that Judas had sold his soul. But Satan is saying now is the time, tonight is the night. We'll actually cover that next Sunday when we look at the next section of text Uh, but now is the time this night of darkness the forces of darkness would come against Jesus in the dark of night but Jesus in verse 3 Look back at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God. Now stop right there with verse 3. Again, John is just setting the whole scene here first. He's not gotten into what Jesus has done. That's coming in verse 4. But Jesus, knowing that the Father uh, knowing the Father had given him all these things, knowing that he had come from God, knowing that he was going to God, Jesus, knowing these things, Jesus is 100% positive that 40-some days now, he will be sitting at the right hand of the Father. He already has perfect communion with the Father on earth, but he will be back on his rightful throne. Nothing can stop him. Not Satan, not countries, not the Roman Empire, not the United Nations, which didn't exist then, obviously, but anything. Nothing could stop Jesus from fulfilling what he was going to fulfill and be right back at the right hand of the Father. Nothing. He knew that nothing could stop him. He's unfazed. He knew he was going back to God. He knew he was very close to finishing this mission. He's unfazed by the evil plan of Satan. He's unfazed. He's not unmoved. Remember, his soul was disturbed at Judas that his own friend was going to rise up as heel against him, as was prophesied in the Old Testament. He's not unmoved by it, but he's unfazed by it. Did you hear the difference? You can be moved. Man, that hurts me, but still complete the mission. Judas and Satan and all of this stuff, its surrounding, wasn't going to make Jesus change or deviate to pour into these disciples that night, even with what's impending. Jesus, of course, he had complete confidence, complete confidence in his Father and the mission that he had been given from his father and brother and sister, for all of us here, those you online, there is great confidence when you know God is in control. Amen. Yes. When I watch the news, I first want to throw something at my TV, right. Right. but then I remember God is in control. I first want to chuck my smartphone when I read another article. I'm like. If another evil thing destroys some child or does this, or you know, but then I remember, God is in control; His plan will not fail, and He is pleased with our obedience in spite of all the swirling things around us. Amen. Amen. Jesus had a lot going on there that they couldn't even see. He spe- He sees the spirit world that they could not see, and yet He is focused on His disciples and finishing the Father gave him to do. Jesus has a lot weighing on his shoulders, but he's there to minister to them. It's been well said that people can endure pain when they know there's a purpose for the pain. You may be going through something right now and say, how do I endure it? If you know God has allowed it, and it's for his glory, and you to become more conformed to the image of Christ, you can accept it much more readily. You can endure as Jesus did because he knew the purpose was going to be to save souls and glorify the Father. And that outweighed anything else that was weighing on him and in that room. Jesus demonstrates that he can ignore the troubled hour. And it is a troubled hour. It's a dark hour. It's going to result in his murder. Uh, He can ignore all that and actually focus on the present And the present purpose of pouring into these disciples, which are going to take this whole gospel message, we're here because they stayed the course with him. Oh, we need to learn how to rest in God's control so we don't say, oh, I can't do this, I can't do that because i got all these other things swirling. Jesus, you can. You focus your attention on me, and I can put like horse blinders on you. You ever see when they're, I think the third leg of the Kentucky Derby still remains, the Preakness I think is the last one or what, I can't remember which one it is, but uh, but anyway, when they put those blinders on, the horses can go full throttle because they're no longer distracted. God wants to do that. With us, Jesus was able to focus in, but Jesus here, undeterred, Undeterred by the unseen working of Satan, and and Satan's trying to mess the whole scene up, but he's not going to get to because all five chapters is going to be here preserved for us, which we'll be going through. And Jesus, in verse 4, we see uh, John sets the stage there, so then in verse 4, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. Jesus is seated. There for this meal. They're all seated. You can imagine the disciples wondering what he's doing when he gets up and he takes a towel and he begins to, kind of like we would do a belt, he begins to gird himself with a towel so it's there and he might uh, have part of it hanging there to uh, kind of use with what he's about to do. And he lays aside his garments. He starts to take off the outer garment. He's girded himself with this towel. And then in verse 5, it says after that, he pours water into a basin. Let's stop right there for a second. At this point, these 12 Jewish men, all from the Middle East, and you, you know that in the ancient times, people were not wearing Nikes, were awesome boots. They were wearing sandals. And their feet got really dusty. And it was common all throughout the Middle East to come into a house. There'd be water basins there for the washing of feet. But it was particularly mandated in the Jewish culture to have that water basin there and to wash the feet. And the washing of feet always was before the meal. Here Jesus is rising after the meal. But nevertheless, they know what it looks like when someone is about to do foot washing. They know the posture. They know what the servants wear. They know what the servants are not wearing. That outer garments taken off. And you can imagine them thinking, is he really about to do what we think he's about to do? Correct me if I'm wrong. They're thinking in their head. He looks like he's about to do servant work. Like, not just any servant work. Foot washing was reserved for the lowest servant in the servant pool. So if you had ten servants in the house, whoever was the lowest, lowest ranking one was the one that got the duty of foot washing. The absolute lowest rank. So Jesus... Oh, by the way, um, there's a, a member of our family. You might have someone in your family like this. There's a member of our family who hates feet. Not in my personal family, in my extended family. They hate feet except for their own feet and baby's feet. So, uh, but if it's not their feet or a baby's foot, they think all other feet are gross. And Dr. Russ, I know you do surgeries on feet and you, do, you pull toenails out and do all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, that makes other people vomit, Russ, just so you know. Um, but So you know, we've got this one person in our family who hates everyone's feet but their own. Of course, their own are amazing, I guess, But, uh, but and baby's feet. Because baby's feet smell really nice and all that stuff. And they look and they're soft. And, uh, but this was, again, the job of washing. It didn't matter. If you were the lowest ranking servant, it didn't matter whose bunion-covered feet you got. <laughs> you, that, that was your job. So Jesus, he stands only to stoop. He stands up to immediately lay aside everything and stoop. He's laid aside his garments here to labor. You would think that the night before the cross, that the only thing would be everyone laboring for Jesus, not him laboring before he's going to labor on the cross. But he now takes his clean hands, which at this point do not have nail-pierced marks in them yet. The following day, nails will be driven through the hand, but he takes his clean hands to their unclean feet. And he begins to take clean, pure water to wash away the filth. I think you can see some of the spiritual imagery here already, right? The water is a picture of the Holy Spirit, which cleans away God. The Spirit of God cleanses us But it only comes through. Jesus has to bring the Spirit. Jesus is the one with the water. Jesus brings the salvation. He brings the Holy Spirit. He begins to clean away the filth. And then he takes that towel that's at his waist and he begins to carefully dry. He doesn't just wash the feet. He carefully dries the feet. One disciple at a time. One foot at a time. Another foot. Another disciple. First foot. Second foot. We can only surmise the disciples are stunned and yet they're accommodating. They're letting go, alright, I don't know why you're doing this. Everyone's just thinking their different thoughts. I can't believe he's doing this. They may have been willing to wash each other's feet. Doubtful. <laughs> they usually argued about things. They probably would have washed Jesus' feet if he asked But to wash theirs, they didn't really expect that at all. Look at verse 6. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Peter's always willing to say what everyone else wants to say. (laughs) There's like one of these in every family, right? Good thing they're here, because I know the question will get asked. I don't have to ask it. I don't look like the one that's asking the difficult question, but Peter just goes ahead and says it. Are you going to wash my feet? Well, duh, he's washed everyone else. Why would he not wash yours? Jesus answers in verse 7, What I am doing you do not understand now. Boy, couldn't Jesus say that to us for 8 million things? I mean, that's just that statement right there. If Jesus says this to you, can you accept that? He's in control. What's happening to you and me is no accident. What I'm doing right now, you don't understand. You can fill in many aspects of your lifetime with that verse. Doesn't mean that he doesn't know. But he says, you don't understand. But after this, you will. Eventually, we will. Maybe it's not until we get to heaven. Or maybe it'll be next week. In their case, they were really close to understanding. By at least three or four days later... They would start to understand things they never understood before when he would and end up rising from the dead. But he call he responds rather calmly to Peter. You'll not understand. You don't understand what I'm doing, but eventually you will. One thing they should have understood is the nature of Jesus' entire ministry, which was being demonstrated here. Back in Mark uh, chapter 10, verse 45: The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. I hate to pick on our politicians for a second. You know their their title is public servant. I'm always amazed. How did you become a millionaire within three years of being in the U.S. Senate? I I thought you were there to serve us. Turns out you have turned this into a money-making operation and power grab and everything else. But that wasn't Jesus. He deserved it all. He owned it all. He controls it all by the word of his mouth, and yet he came to serve. Jesus is demonstrating... What he had previously said, numerous places of demonstration that his, his whole life, his whole ministry, was descending, and we see the scene here, descending from the throne to the dusty, fallen world, just as he took a place from his seat down to their dusty feet. And we see that the order will continue to follow. He will go from feet all the way to laying himself down on a cross. And then from the cross down into a grave. That's how low he is going to go. Look at verse 8. Peter said to him, now Peter gets his answer, Jesus already told him, you don't understand. That doesn't stop Peter from making an assumption here. You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered to him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no part of me. Understand or not, Peter's not afraid to make a judgment call. And then to verbalize it, and he does, and he concludes that the foot washing stops with him. I know you wash these other guys. I know they kind of let you do something that was way beneath you, but I'm not going to let you do something that is beneath you. It's beneath your authority, Jesus. It's beneath your glory, So Peter says, when he says, you will never wash my feet, the Greek literally means, the Greek of this means, not for eternity. (laughs) Peter's like, I'm not just saying today. I am saying for all eternity, you will never wash my feet. I am glad God forgives us for dumb things we say. Aren't you? Like, instead of you saying, all right, that's it, you're not saved, you know. He doesn't say that. He doesn't, even, he doesn't even come down hard on him here. Later he will say, Get behind me, Satan. That's, that's a pretty stern <laughs> response. Uh, but it literally means not ever, not for eternity. This shows how flawed our vision can be sometimes. Amen? Well, we think we're actually... Peter thinks he's doing Jesus. He thinks that this is actually worshipful to Jesus. He thinks Jesus is going to love this statement. He thinks he's going to say... Peter, now look at everybody. Let, let me put arm around. Peter here is the first one that realized that this is beneath me. Why didn't the rest of y'all believe that it was beneath me? That's Peter thinks that he's, he's doing something good, he's doing something noble. I'm defending your character. You should not do the lowest, wrong slave duty. But we can sometimes think that we are having some kind of righteous thought. But if we are running into the will of God, we are not in a righteous place. We are actually revolting against the will of God at times. We're opposed to the will of God. Any, By the way, believers that say, I want to do something really amazing, and if it conflicts with Scripture, it's not amazing. Amen? And... This is what Jesus said. Now we have the written word. So today when you see churches and pastors saying, I know what the word says, we're going to do this anyway. That's complete arrogance. It's complete, hey God, take your scripture and chuck it out the window. We've decided this is the way to operate. And Jesus is very gentle with Peter here, but, but the point remains, whatever God says is correct, not what we think at times. Our, our thinking can be off even when we're trying to do something we think is correct or helpful. But Jesus simply explains to Peter, If I do not wash you, you have no part of me. By the way, if you say that to someone who has a soft heart, they get the message real quick and Peter does. He, he's not like someone says, well then, fine, have it your way. He doesn't say that. Peter's like, "Okay, I was way off. Again. <laughs> I was way off. Please wash me, head to toe. I need a shower, <laughs> not a foot bath." <laughs> but Jesus tells him in verse 10, "He was bathed, and he's only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. Jesus says, "You only need me to wash your feet." It's a change from worldly feet to heavenly feet. Our feet that used to walk on the broad road to destruction, that we're walking to the darkness of hell, we're walking in the course of this world. Instead, we are put on a path to light and eternity in heaven. And our feet have been shod with, as Ephesians 6.15 says, shod with the gospel, the preparation of the gospel of peace. God anoints our feet with his gospel. Jesus said, I've washed your feet. You are clean, but in verse 10, and also into verse 11, Jesus goes on to say, you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, you are not all clean. Even um, after this symbolic washing because Jesus has never physically came and washed my feet nor any of yours right this was symbolic even after this symbolic cleansing that signifies Jesus cleansing the soul one heart remained unwashed because it was unmoved one heart in that room remained unwashed because it was still unmoved. Peter had foolishly put his foot in his mouth, but he firmly believed in Jesus. As soon as Jesus corrected him, he said, Give me a bath. <laughs> Judas never said a word. Judas stayed silent. Didn't say anything foolish. But in his heart, he didn't believe any. He's like, I don't know what. I don't need this. I'm, make, I'm about to make some money with the Pharisees. Isn't it sad that people choose the temporal? I mean, your life is going to be gone in a vapor. And people are going to choose, but I got the promotion, or I got this, or I made a million dollars, or I was this, or I was popular. I, I was in the front of Time magazine. Whatever it is. He had foolishly chosen this world over Jesus and said, one of you is not clean because you don't believe in me and you will not release the reins of your soul. Verse 12. So when he had uh, washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down, down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? When Jesus had finished, he asked them if they knew what he had done we also see a picture here of Jesus' coming to the earth, him fulfilling the mission of salvation, and his reascending to the throne. We see the whole picture. Take the picture of what happens in just a few moments there. Maybe not a few It takes a while to wash everyone's feet, but uh, in a matter of however minutes it took and all. Take that picture and compare it to the whole life and ministry of Jesus. Here Jesus is seated, he stands up to stoop down, he gets all the way down to dust, dust and dirt, and while he's down at dust and dirt, he washes, and it's a picture of saving the souls, or washing and cleansing those, when he's done, and by the way, to do all that he had to lay aside his garments, then he takes the garments back up and he re-sits back down. Now you see the whole Jesus leaves heaven, comes down to the dust of the earth, saves the souls of men, takes back his garment, goes back and sits back down again. So you see the whole picture, uh, even in this setting of what Jesus has come to do for them and for us. Verse 13. They still don't know. Jesus says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. They still don't grasp what he's done, they still don't grasp what he's portrayed, but he reminds them, here's, the, here's all you need to know. If you call me teacher and rightly so, do whatever I tell you to do. Remember his mom said that way back when his hour had not come, when it came out, she says, whatever he says, do it. But for you and I, he says, you call me teacher and rightly so. This is my personal question to you guys and I believe it's really not my question it's Jesus himself asking the question is Jesus your teacher? your teacher those of you online, your teacher is Jesus your teacher is he personally teaching you? if you have Christ in your heart he should be teaching you he is your savior but he's also your rabbi and teacher and instructor, and counselor, and father, and all the other names ever... All the names that are mentioned about him. Or is Jesus just a life you read about, but he's not that life that's teaching you how to live your life? Is he just something you're reading about? Or do you have him personally teaching you? He's he's constantly teaching me. And by the way, uh, we are all... At best at the end of our life, teenagers in the faith, because Jesus is so far above us. That's why he said little children to all of us. He's constantly shaping us, molding us, conforming us. Verse 14 If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus, if he's washing, others' feet, if he's serving other people in spite of his position because he's the king of the universe in spite of his own personal trouble that's weighing against him and all that's coming his impending death surely they and we should be serving, helping and ministering to one another. I want to st- stop here, here with the one point to make. Remember here, Jesus is saying, you should be washing each other's feet. We do have the Great Commission. We have a calling. I just talked about missions, why it matters to us what's happening in Guatemala, why it matters to us what's happening in the Philippines or in India or in Italy. I've never met all the people in those countries. I hope they all come to Jesus. We have a calling. I have a calling when I leave here later today. and I run into someone, I get a chance to share the gospel, I will. But in this setting, in this upper room discourse, Jesus is focusing in on believers ministering to believers. He's later going to say, this is how the whole world will know that you're truly my disciple, that you love one another. That's in this same night. He says that in this upper room discord. So this particular scene is Jesus exhorting everyone in this room, you will someday stand before God and say, why did you not minister to the brothers and sisters? Why did you not wash their feet? Well, I was really busy. Have you seen my work schedule? Have you seen what I was trying to accomplish? He said, yes, I saw that. So he's saying, we we ought to be doing these things. We ought to be washing one another's feet. And he says in verse 15, look at verse 15, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Here in verse 15, they've been given not just an example, but the perfect example from the perfect Savior, their teacher, their Lord. And now they've been given not just an example, here's a command. So it's one thing for Jesus that when I was younger, my dad said, I'm going to show you how to cut eight rows of the yard. You're going to grab it from here. I had an example, then I had a command. But I'm like, there's an acre left. You do it way better than I. You keep doing it. I used to do it. I used to say it. I'll mess it up and all this other stuff. But he didn't care. He's like, no, you're going to (laughs) mow it. You're going to get good at this. Hour later, I come at all sweaty. But the example was set, and then you have the command. Example plus the command. And so Jesus said, as I've done, you now need to do. He goes on in verse 16. Most surely I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than the one who sent him. What does all that mean? We're all under Jesus' authority. No servant here outranks Jesus. No pastor, that pastor sold 48 books. And where does he rank? Nowhere compared to Jesus. Matter of fact, he might rank under some little... Lady in India we've never heard of that God is going to exalt with all kinds of position in the great millennium, right? So God's not impressed by what people have accomplished. The people you've never heard of in North Korea are going to, I I guarantee I'll be answering to all of them in the millennium. But all of us are under him. We're all the same servants. We all have the same reporting structure and that is to Christ and nobody who's been cleansed by Jesus who went lower than even the feet, but all the way down to the cross and into the grave. No one went as low as Christ did. There's not one believer that's ever been born again from the time of Christ till now. There's not one believer who has ever, not anyone in this room, anyone online, if you've not been doing this, this is God saying to you, now's your time. There's not a single believer who has ever been exempt from foot washing in the body of Christ. Not literally washing feet. I've seen churches do that. Uh, I'm not saying anything for or against it. I, that's not what Jesus was saying. You have to learn to go low and minister to people. In the body. Even people that, well, but they rub me the wrong way. Well, they have feet and that's your basin. If we're still staring at the basin, it's time for us to pick the basin up, humble ourselves, and serve like Jesus. I want to close with uh, just something I put up on the screen that kind of parallels, I, takes the whole thing and kind of encapsulates it all. Number one, Jesus stood up from a meal. Remember that the meal, and every meal you and I have, is for is to be enjoyed. I mean... Later today I might have lunch with my wife and I thoroughly will enjoy having a meal with her and a conversation but every meal is not just some meals aren't even really to enjoy some meals are just for sustenance but all of our dining is to go and do something with that strength. Number two Jesus laid aside his garments and we're going to have to lay aside our priorities and anything that we're holding on to. Number three, there's a humility put putting on the form of servant and all of us are called to be servants. Number four, he took a towel and he girded himself to labor and we're going to have to do the preparation and in fact the labor that it requires sometimes to labor in the word and in prayer and girded by strength, God's strength through the word and prayer to do the things he's called us to do, not what our flesh wants to do. Number five, Jesus began to pour out the water and do the work. And by the way, if we have the Holy Spirit, he pours out of us and helps us do the work. But we're actually going to have to do it. We can't just say, uh, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. And then our life comes to an end and we've never really taken. But if we have the Holy Spirit, he helps pour us out to do it. Number six, Uh, he went low to dirty feet. And we're going to have to go low. We're going to have to humble ourselves. We're going to have to take our precious commodity of time. And we're going to have to get dirty sometimes, helping other people. And when the dust of this world is collected on other people's feet, it's not easy to get it off. It's not fun to work with. Many people leave the ministry because it's too dusty and too difficult. But all of you have a ministry. All of you have people that you're called to minister to. Well, what if it doesn't come easy? Yeah, sometimes you have to scrub. But God will help. Number seven, he took a towel. And we're going to have to take a towel. And I take that to mean we have to finish tasks. We have to actually We can't leave it 80%. Whatever God's... We have to finish the task. And sometimes we have to go back and double check it again. Any you ever wipe the counter and you say... You get down like this angle. You come back and get a little other angle. But you double check. And God is very thorough. Jesus was thorough. Every... I'm going to take a towel. Finish it. And make sure it's completely done. Jesus was a finisher. At the end he said, It is Finished. This, all these are discipleship. Us growing in these things. Knowing only helps if we do them. Jesus said, uh, in the last verse, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Knowing them. Lots of people know what they should do. Lots of pe- I remember when I was a kid, you know, there would be the drug commercials. Drugs are bad for you. Everyone I knew in high school knew that. Everyone wanted to do them anyway. right? Knowing stuff doesn't mean anything. It's what you do with it. Disciples are sent to do. We have the water of the Spirit. Uh, Last thing, a couple of quotes. I've been rereading Warren Wiersbe's uh, On Being a Servant of God. I love these two quotes. I put them in uh, together. You and I can't do everything. But we can do something. And that something is the ministry that God has called us to fulfill, whether it's in children's ministry or serving people in your family. And he goes on to say that serving God, and I love this, isn't punishment. It's nourishment. Mm-hmm. Everything Jesus said, he said, you will never find peace. You know, so said the first service as well. One of the things about Jesus and his humility, um, he was so confident who he was that he didn't care. Like he knew he was going back to the Father. When you're confident in God, when you know that Where you stand with God is all that matters. You don't have to impress anybody anymore. You don't care what people think. You don't mind being a servant. You're just going to die to yourself. You don't need to impress people, say, I've got this. I've accomplished this. That's what the world, they're always doing self-promotion. Jesus was doing self-denial. Amen? Dying to self. Jesus set the perfect example. He loved beyond measure. We're now to simply follow him, obey, and pour out our lives and like manner. Amen. Father, we thank you again for this time. And Lord, even as we enter into a time of communion and Lord's Supper, we pray that, uh, Lord, that you've even given us a little more clear vision of just how humble you are and how much you love those who have called upon your name. Lord, you love us in this room not because we're lovable, but because you've bestowed love on us. You've given us value that we did not have until we believed in you.